do we say that in Radio Land? Let's roll. <laughs> I don't know. We're rolling. I, I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> a pro- appropriate terminology. I'm still kind of learning this gig. I mean, I've only been doing it for five years, but I'm still trying to figure it out. So. Well, look, I've, what I've been doing for a lifetime, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 249. Richard Bernier, tracking and stalking big Maine whitetail bucks. Support for the Big Buck Registry and the Deer Hunt Podcast comes from Hunter's Blend Coffee, imported directly from family farms, roasted and brought to you by hunters who support the hunting industry. Polar Works Coolers and the Chill Zone, specializing in the most durable, reliable thermal cups and coolers. Keep your drinks hot or cold in any element. Black Ash Outdoor Products reduce your risk of tree stand suspension trauma with a tree stand wingman, the tree stand emergency descender system. Covert scouting cameras, remote cameras for hunting, wildlife, and security. The Horny Buck Seed Gummy, it's all about the freshest seed. Morse's Sporting Goods, a full line of sporting goods without the sales tax. And Big Buck Merch, you can get cool high quality Big Buck t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and hoodies. And show support for this podcast by visiting www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. This is Lieutenant David Gregory with Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife Law Enforcement Division, and you're listening to our favorite podcast, the Big Buck Registry. This is Josh Franks from Pressure Deer Pros. You're listening to my favorite podcast, Big Buck Registry. Hey, this is Paul Kurtz with Hunter's Blend Coffee, and you're about to listen to my favorite podcast, Big Buck Registry. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, fellow predators. My name is Jay, and thank you for tuning in to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. For Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff here at the Big Buck Registry, welcome to this week's show. There are a couple things I'd like you to do for us if you could. If you would, please check us out on iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a review. With your help, we're going to try and push this show up the iTunes charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there, and I need you to take some action. I need you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access and notification each and every week that a new show is released. You can also access this show in its entirety on YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, and as an Amazon Alexa skill. Go to Alexa and say, Alexa, enable Big Buck Registry. It's all right there for you to access on demand at your fingertips. Regarding the harness program, we have an ample supply of harnesses to give away from our volunteer donors. If you're in need of a full body harness, please send an email to j at bigbuckregistry.com. Richard Bernier is one of those short list legendary deer trackers of the Northeast. He has devoted most of his life to tracking, studying, lecturing on, and hunting the big main whitetail buck. The Northeast editor for Deer and Deer Hunter magazine, Richard's articles and photographs have appeared in nearly every major outdoor publication in America. Otherwise known as RG or Dick, Richard has perfected the craft of outsmarting Maine's crafty big wilderness hog-bodied bucks with both gun and camera. We'll turn to our entire interview with Richard Bernier in just one moment, but before we do, let's hear from our friends at Polar Works Coolers and then Jim Keller 
with the deer news. Folks, I want to tell you about one of the best coolers I've found for the price in quite a while. I always wanted one of those high-end coolers because of the quality that I had heard of, but I couldn't justify the price. Finally, I found a company that understands quality and affordability. The Polar Works lineup is extensive and is filled with polar cups, polar tubs, and polar soft coolers. What do I love about these coolers? Well, for one, the ice stays frozen for a long, long period of time. But they've thought of other things in their design. For example, drain speed. No one likes a slow drain after a long weekend on the trail. There's the sweat-free material, so you don't have to worry about cleaning up puddles when you're finished with your journey. So check out PolarWorks.com when you're considering your next high-quality cooler without breaking the bank. That's www.polarworkz.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, Philadelphia archery hunting season proposed. This story is from the DeerAndDeerHunting.com website. Philly hunters, listen up. An archery hunting season is planned for a portion of the 993-acre John Hines National Wildlife Refuge in Philadelphia to manage whitetail populations. The U.S. Department of the Interior's Fish and Wildlife Service is behind the only legal deer hunt on public land within city borders, the Inquirer reports. The Pennsylvania Game Commission approves of the plan, which will divide 167 acres of the refuge into three sections to reduce the number of deer within the area. According to the plan, there will be a buffer zone to keep hunters away from buildings, refuge boundaries, and public roadways. There will also be an established 500-foot no-shooting zone and safety zones near residential areas. The sections open to hunting will include a 63-acre parcel within Philadelphia's borders near the Eastwick section and a 104-acre region in Tinicum Township adjacent to Darby Creek. Since the refuge is a popular recreational area and home to a variety of wildlife, the area will be closed and signs posted in advance of the hunt. Hunting within the refuge was banned in 1972. Since then, deer have thrived. Unfortunately, because deer are natural browsers, Oak and maple saplings are unable to reach maturity, and invasive species are now the dominant vegetation on the refuge, the Inquirer reports. Historically, the city has held urban deer culls and donated the meat to local food banks for distribution. Opening up the area to a limited number of hunters will hopefully assist in alleviating the damage caused to native vegetation because of too many deer. Ticks emerging unfazed following extremely snowy New England winter. This story is from the Outdoor News website. Hikers and dog lovers may have thought the sub-zero temperatures this winter would put a dent in this year's tick population. Think again. Entomologists said most ticks survived freezing New England temperatures due to insulation provided by leaf cover and snow. Numbers would have decreased had there been drier conditions. Most of the Northeast saw above average snowfall this winter. I would expect that the tick should have survived the winter, said Alan Eaton, a tick expert within the University of New Hampshire's Cooperative Extension. Doesn't matter how cold it is, they're under a blanket of snow, so they're protected. But it's less clear whether it'll turn into a bumper year for ticks. Some experts say a lot of it depends on if the spring will be a wet one. It's difficult to predict because the weather changes and that could really impact the ticks, said Christopher Rallis of the State Department of Agriculture. A 2016 drought saw the tick numbers decrease, he added. Last year, the tick population increased after a rainy spring. But some experts look to the white-footed mouse population, a favorite host of the nymphal tick, to predict tick numbers. Last year, Rick Osfeld, a disease ecologist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in the lower Hudson Valley, predicted an influx of ticks since the mice population was high. This year, his test sites have found relatively few mice and chipmunks, so he doesn't expect a high tick crop. 
With increased tick numbers in the past decade, there has been growth in related diseases. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the number of Lyme disease cases has increased 30% from a decade ago. Seven of the 14 states with the highest number of cases are in the Northeast. Cases of anaplasmosis, which can cause fever, headache, chills, and muscle aches, has also risen steadily. Health officials are already urging anyone who spends time outdoors to take precautions. Senate Banking Chairman Chastises Citibank and Bank of America on Guns This story is from the Wall Street Journal website and was reported by Andrew Ackerman. The Senate's top overseer of banks is criticizing moves by Citigroup Incorporated and Bank of America Corporation to stop doing some business with the gun industry following the deadly shooting in February at a Florida high school. Senate Banking Committee Chairman Mike Crapo in letters to the heads of both banks made public Wednesday said he was concerned when large national banks, quote, cut off financial services for lawful businesses, they may disfavor, end quote. Mr. Crapo's letters to Bank of America's Brian Moynihan and Citigroup's Michael Corbett come after the firms took steps in recent weeks to curtail business with the gun industry. Mr. Moynihan's letter was dated Wednesday and Mr. Corbett's Friday. Citi, the first of the two banks to act, said last month that it would prohibit its business partners from selling firearms to customers under the age of 21 and those who haven't passed a background check. Bank of America later announced it would stop lending to manufacturers of military-inspired rifles like the one used in the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. It isn't clear what concrete steps lawmakers could take in reaction to the bank's moves, which have divided Republican lawmakers. Some, like Mr. Crapo, whose panel oversees both banks, argues the banks are attempting to replace legislators and shape social policy by limiting access to credit. A city spokesman confirmed the bank had received Mr. Crapo's letter and said the firm would respond. A spokesman for Bank of America declined to comment. In his letters to the bank chiefs, Mr. Crapo said he had, quote, serious concerns, unquote, about the industry's potential use of personally identifiable information to, quote, monitor and deny financial services to individuals and companies who are engaging in completely legal and, in this case, constitutionally protected conduct, end quote. Pennsylvania Game Commissioners Increased Doe Hunting Licenses by 34,000. This story is for the PennLive website and was reported by Marcus Schneck. The Pennsylvania Game Commission plans to issue 34,000 more antlerless deer licenses for the 2018-2019 hunting season. The Board of Game Commissioners on Tuesday approved an allocation of 838,000 doe permits for the coming hunting license year. Hunting licenses for 2018 and 19 go on sale in mid-June and become effective July 1st. After hunters purchase a general hunting license, they may apply for an antlerless deer license based on staggered timelines. One other deer hunting modification approved for the 2018-19 season is to extend the statewide archery deer season to Monday, November 12th to include Veterans Day. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here is Richard Bernier. Richard Bernier, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? Well, I'm doing well. Uh, the temperature is warm. Uh, there's a warm rain falling, which is better than a cold snow. I was just about to ask, is it still snowing in Maine? Well, not where I am. Uh, I still got a remnant of a pile on my back lawn, but otherwise, everything's looking like it should finally. Excellent. That's good to hear. 
Considering we start chasing turkeys uh, on Monday, I'd rather sit on uh, brown leaves than white snow. Right. <laughs> Although it would be interesting to, to hunt a turkey in snow, I would think. I saw some some photos out west that uh, I think up in the northern states, yeah. seeing some guys taking yeah. some, some birds in the snow. Kind of interesting. It is. And I guess I don't have to worry about bugs. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing about living in the Northeast is that the bugs during turkey season are pretty obnoxious. Yeah, once we uh, once it gets above seventy for a few days and and higher, then it starts to get yeah buggy. Yeah. Now I don't want to let the cat out of the bag because I'm hoping to take advantage of it this year. But Maine, I think, is one of those well kept secrets about turkey hunting. The comparison to New Hampshire, for example. In Maine, from what I hear from my good friend Fred Bird, he tells me that there's less pressure in Maine on the birds and that you can get two birds in certain areas, in most areas, per spring. And out-of-staters, it's only like 75 bucks plus a $20 tag. That would be accurate. That's that's insane. And you can hunt in uh, well, dawn to dusk. You can't do that in New Hampshire. Yeah, you can hunt all day now, and uh, which makes for a very long day, uh, considering how long the sun's up right. at this time of the year. Right. It can make a long day. It, it can make a long day. And so, uh, But very very attractive to the out-of-staters, I have to say. Well, I mean, it is, but again, uh, turkeys being what they are and being able to locate them and find out where they are and, you know, again, it's like any other hunting. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, sure. Yeah. Hunting's hunting. There's no question. Hunting's hunting. Yeah. And so, but, uh, you know, there, I, boy, I just saw something today that people are in Southern Ohio or in Indiana, two different parties, and they, they have birds up the gazoo. Yeah. Nebraska. It's not, Nebraska, you can see a hundred gobblers in a morning. <laughs> so in comparative, right. uh, you know, it, it's all relative to, to where you're hunting. Sure. Sure. So. Gotcha. Yeah. What, yeah. um, did, did you grow up in Maine? I did. You did. Take us back to I, I, your youth. I live probably 13 miles from where I was born. Okay. You know, where I resided as a child. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't uh, really get very far from my roots. Yeah. You didn't, didn't, uh. At, at least, at least where I live. Yeah. You didn't homestead very far from, from no. original, your original homestead. What, what, That's uh, right. What, do, do you remember, like, who were your mentors back then? Like, who did you look up to to learn about the outdoors and woodman, woodsmanship? Well, my, my, of course, my I grew up in a family that hunted. My dad was a hunter and still is. Okay. Uh, in fact, he, he he killed a buck last year. That I'll tell you, if I'd shot a Boone and Crockett, personally, it wouldn't have meant more to me than him shooting this buck. Wow. And that was at the age of 77. Wow. So, um yeah, I grew up watching him leave to go into the woods. And back when I was a boy, you know, driving 25, 30 minutes, 45 minutes max uh, from outside of Portland, mm -hmm. uh, you were in big woods. And that's where I cut my teeth. And so my, you know, watching him and watching the deer he would bring home and listening to the stories. I mean, really, he, he he's primarily the genesis behind no pun intended, uh, my, you know, my, my early days of hunting. Gotcha. And as I <clears throat> grew into it and, 
and it continued to enjoy it. And it let me skip school occasionally. Okay. And uh, so that was always neat. But, but again, it wasn't the day off from school. It was so intriguing. It was the fact that I wanted to be in the woods. Right. And it was all, you know, revolved around a certain expectation of grades and whatnot. So that was their leverage. And when I got to be about a senior in high school, you know, that's about the time that Larry Benoit came out with his book. Sure. And so, boy, and I'd seen a couple of articles in Sports Afield, and that was intriguing. That captured me. That was probably the impetus that led me to say, okay, that sounds exciting. That's how I want to do things. Gotcha. All right. So, Larry, you can and, track some of this stuff back to Larry. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of – and then as a result of that, I met – Dear friend, who's now has you know passed on, uh, Don Poland, who was every bit uh, the consummate buck hunter tracker as Larry was, with the difference being nobody knew who Don Poland was other than locals, and I learned a lot about tracking from Don as well. Mm. All right, so so Don taught you a bunch of things. Do you do you remember some of the the skills or some of the lessons that they taught you? from either Larry's book or maybe even hanging out with Larry or uh, what Don brought you to or, or showed you back then when you were a young man? Well, one of the things was to be, uh, once you start tracking, stay on the track. Okay. I remember one day I, I, I jumped on three different buck tracks and, and then ran into Poland on the same mountain. And he said, young man, I've been doing this for quite a while. If you're going to succeed at that, First of all, you've got to stop messing with me. And second of all, stay on the track that you start. Hmm. I said, okay, how did I mess you up? Because every track that I started today, you jumped on in front of me. <laughs> so if you'd stayed on the first one, I'd have had a buck to hunt. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it was a great lesson. I, I felt horrible for him. and But, boy, that was a lesson that sunk in. Boom. Yeah. Never had to be said again. Right. Uh, the other, the other, uh, I guess it was a big lesson was, uh, from Larry was the fact that these deer make a swing. And he said, you may see his track once every three days, particularly, you know, as the rut, there wasn't a lot of deer behaviorism in, in it. It was, a, it was okay. How do I, how do I, what's the best way to kill that buck once I start tracking him? Yeah. Well, what's the best time to come back to get him? And so he says every third day that buck will come back through. So once you find a fresh track, okay, only three days come back. Gotcha. So those were two, two initial lessons that were very helpful. Gotcha. All right. What does hunting mean to you now? Like if you had to like sum it up or a feeling or an emotion, what is it to you now? It's fulfillment. Okay. Enjoyment. Um, you know, there's a lot of my hunting early on where it was, you know, it was, Nose to the grindstone, go do it, get it, go, go, uh, succeed. And succeed not for anything more than personal satisfaction. I tell people wherever I speak, I said, you know what? Hunting for me is self-satisfaction. Without the self-satisfaction, you know, there's no reason to do it. And so now the self-satisfaction comes in, I think Gene Wenzel or Barry Wenzel, Barry Wenzel said it best. He says, now I take time. Not to drink the coffee, but to smell the coffee, to smell the roast, 
to yeah. enjoy it, yeah. to enjoy it to the fullest. And I'm at that point where uh, I want to enjoy every minute. I want to enjoy, I'll stop to, to photograph something. I'll stop and sit to enjoy something. Whereas in my younger days, I keep pushing. And I'm not sure that that has had any negative effect on the end result. Right, but right, right. you couldn't have told me that. You couldn't have told you couldn't have told me that twenty years ago. Right. No, I see what you're saying. No, that makes sense. It definitely makes sense to me. You know, I I, I, I want to, you know, the reflection because you know as you reflect back on on hunts and as I reflect back on a season, you know, I want to reflect on not that I not just that I I killed a deer, but that wow, that was really enjoyable. I enjoyed that aspect. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the aspect of figuring this out and being able to capture him. Right. And so that, uh, that means a lot more to me today. Gotcha. Very good. Do you recall your earliest hunting experience? Oh, with, (laughs) with vivid recall. (laughs) All right. This will be good. I I, I tell you, honest and truly pop had to have the patience of Job when it came to me. Um, being the runt of the litter, if you will, and um, just full of endless questions. And I remember almost to the, the the tree that we sat beneath on his special ridge, and and there I was sitting with 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 Halloween candy because Halloween was the night before, and this was my first deer hunt at the age of ten legally that I could be there, go have a rifle. And and I remember asking him, it probably, it seemed like every five minutes, when are the deer coming? I just figured, okay, there was a check-in and the deer just automatically came. Right. And, and he would shush me and says, oh, just be, be patient, be patient. And I still remember that spike horn came up over the hill, stood there looking and listen, Jay, that deer was destined to die. Yeah. Just, so he he got me in front of him, deer standing there just staring back. Just whispering in my ear, "Okay, aim for this." Uh, okay, okay, and, and it it would it seemed like it was an entire day, which is probably more than forty five seconds to an hour. I mean, uh, a minute. But that deer stood there and just just watched. And uh, it was a hundred pound spike one. And yeah. and yeah. now, having taken my own son and hopefully my grandsons realizing what I put that man through and still got a deer. It was, it was, uh, it was remarkable. Yeah. Gotcha. 10 years old and, and have never looked back. And and that's as special today as any of the largest bucks that I've killed. Gotcha. For the people that aren't from here or that aren't from new England or even from Maine, can you describe what the terrain in Maine is like so that somebody that's never seen it or experienced it might understand? Well, and the beauty of living in Maine is that we can have uh, four seasons, and at any given time, you can be in a different terrain. Uh, two hours north and west of me, I can be in the mountains, and there's some real mountains. Uh, two hours north of there, I can be in... in uh, uh, paper company land, mm-hmm. which is a lot flatter. It's more ridges. Two hours to my east, I can be along the coast where the climate's a lot more moderate. Mm-hmm. And so you pick where you want to hunt. And based on statistics, you can look and say, okay, what 
part of the state has typically grown the best antler. And there are statistics for that. Yeah. You can look and say, okay, where is the heaviest bucks typically shot? And there's statistics for that. Where is the land more forgiving to the human body versus where's it going to take its toll on the climbing mountains? Right, right. So uh, you've got you've got the availability of all of those things. And just because uh, there's mountains there doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find a big set of antlers. And typically that is the case. Mm. You're not going to get big antlers in the mountains. Too much stress on the whitetail. If you go where the land is, a, is much more flat, the climate a little better, the pH in the soil a little better, you're going to get much better antlers. Maybe you won't get the same amount of weight because the winters aren't nearly as severe. Yeah. Okay. And now that's a broad spectrum. I mean, every now and then a buck will appear from one of these locations where it shouldn't weigh that much, but it does. Yeah. Gotcha. Speaking of statistics, I was going through my QDMA book and I noticed that Maine is one of the top states for percentage of harvest by rifle or shotgun to the tune of 89% as opposed to bow or muzzleloader. So yeah. It's telling me that Maine's a, a gun state. Well, it's a gun state, but a lot of the terrain is so thick. I mean, a lot of my bucks that I've killed here in Maine have been 50 yards or less, which yeah. I, I always said I, I would rather pride myself on my hunting skill than my shooting skill. But um, based on the terrain, I mean, we have a lot of thick terrain where you, if you aren't close, you're not going to see them. So... Bow hunters, uh, you know, are, are, it, I'm not going to say this is not a bow hunter state because there's a lot of bow hunters. Mm -hmm. But based on the terrain and the vast amount of woodland that we have here, it's it's does not lend itself the same way it would say in Iowa. Yeah. In terms in terms of bow hunting, and I think that's one of the one of the drawbacks is. Because we're in one of the most heavily forested states in the Union, it's, it becomes a little more difficult for an archer to set up and say with any uh, regularity that, okay, I've got deer that are going to be coming through here. Gotcha. So I, okay. I think that probably plays a big role in as, as to why those statistics are the way they are. And Maine has a very generous rifle season. Right. You know, it's four weeks statewide, mm -hmm. and then it's two weeks of muzzleloader. So you get six weeks if you hunt with a firearm, as opposed to one month with archery. Although you can hunt with archery during rifle season if you choose. This sounds like most guys so will I think pick that, up the gun. That, those those are some of the reasons that that would be skewed so heavily okay. in that direction, Jay. Okay. Talking about your style of hunting, I I am familiar with your style. Can you tell me what the typical style of hunting is that you do, and maybe talk about some of the the things that you need to bring with you as you go through this style of, of hunting. Okay. Well, I've been a tracker since the end of high school days, okay. as indicated earlier in the conversation. Right. Now, a lot of the, a lot of times now I don't have snow to hunt on just because it doesn't snow or the snow that it does doesn't stay long. So I realized uh, a long time ago that if I was going to be successful consistently, then I had to use tracking to my advantage in ways that doesn't necessarily mean I'm following a buck all day. Hmm. Now, 
if there's snow in the ground and there's a fresh track in front of me, then that's what I'm going to be doing for the day, regardless of how far he goes, what direction. That's what I'm going to be doing. And hopefully getting him before the end of day. And if not, I'm going to learn a lot about him. And about 10 years ago, I started carrying a GPS, not because I couldn't figure out how to get out of the woods, but because I realized the value in being able to hit waypoints as I'm tracking a buck. Should the snow leave, I can go back and I can hunt that buck based on waypoints because he went in these directions for a purpose. Gotcha. Okay. That I had not I got, heard that before. That's interesting though. Well, and that's what introduced me to GPS that got my attention. Mm. Then, then, and I almost, this almost is like cheating in my opinion. <laughs> then I got maps on my GPS right? and, and the maps just say, well, well how, how is that important to you? It's important because I understand what topography whitetails gravitate to. And so when I look at that map and I see where we're going, I see where these waypoints are, that's a huge advantage to me to, to where I feel like, okay, that's where I might intercept him. That's, and, and if I'm hunting from away, mm-hmm. just by looking at a map, I can tell you where the deer are going to be without ever having put my foot there, go there, and, and I'm in the deer. Really? Based on knowing the topographical features that whitetails gravitate to. When you... That's important because of the fact that a lot of times now there isn't snow. And so I can, for instance, the heaviest buck I ever killed was two years ago. And I located his track in a saddle between two ridges that were that, that, that literally was a continuation of one ridge with a saddle in between it. Mm-hmm. And picked his track up and it was this huge track. And fortuitous for me, there was a road going around each side of one of these ridges to the left of the saddle. And so I used the remaining time of the day to, to travel the road to see if I could find his track on either side, which I didn't, which was indicative that, okay, he's coming down, he's crossing right here and going that way. Mm. So I said, well, now this is with no snow on the ground. I said, uh, I know where I'm going to be tomorrow morning. Either one of these two sides this ridge depending on the wind and um all because i found his track and next morning uh, the wind was such that i would be cross cutting it and i love to cross i'd much rather cross cut the wind than walk with it in my face and i certainly don't want it to my back but cross cutting the wind is just exactly what these bucks do a lot hmm. they cross cut the wind when they're walking so i cross cut the wind i'm on a i'm on a trail and as I eased along slowly, two hours, two and a half hours into the hunt, I had a little spike horn, ultimately, that was grunting, chasing a doe. Hmm. So I watched that procession go past me about 40 yards below, um, just just on the lee side of this ridge. And I said, you know what? I should stop here for a bit. They don't know I was here. She might be hot. Let's see what happens. Hmm. So I stopped there. And boy, 20 minutes later, from the direction that they headed, same trail, here comes this guy. And I killed him. Gotcha. And, and, and now I didn't have snow. I wasn't following him, but I used his track to my advantage and was able to, 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 uh, to, to, to kill a super buck. So as I've aged, I've come to the realization that I need to use everything I know about whitetails, what I'm seeing in front of me, put it together, 
and put myself in the best position to capitalize. Gotcha. And that day it worked out. Going back to your mapping strategies and topographical maps, what type of map are you looking at? Are you actually looking at the USGS well, maps even, or something else? Well, well, I've got you know I've got the maps that come on that that come on the GPS. So okay. basically, it's got contours, tells me how steep things are, shows me the water where the water is. Uh, doesn't show me the type of cover such as conifers or right. hardwood. But as I sit here in my office from right where I'm talking to you, Jay, um, I've got a program called Google Earth. Yep. And literally I can go any place in North America. I can go any place in the world, but North America, I can get within three hundred feet and I can look at the terrain. Okay. And that's where I do my scouting. So and you're say, okay, right? you're more or less doing it from a computer prepping for the, yep. the next day or maybe maybe even the hunt that afternoon no, no. or that morning. Nope. No. Nope. I'm doing it from my computer, okay, for the next season. Next season. Yep. Just by looking at the terrain, seeing where, where, where everything. And primarily, I'm looking for this, Jay. The first thing I'm looking for is water. And it's not important why deer gravitate to water as it is that they do. So I'm looking for a stream. I'm looking for two streams, the high ground in between. I'm looking for a river, uh, tributaries, uh, watersheds, remote ponds, peninsulas, once I find the kind of water that I'm looking for, I then start look for the elevation, mm. whether it's ridges, mountains, rolling hills that elevate up from that water. And when I find that, then I want to put together at least two, hopefully three different covers, such as softwood button up against the hardwood. Okay. And then if they've cut, it may not show the you know that it's cut. It'll show an opening. If I get those and I've got water in there, bingo. That's that that's this deer. Now, once my boots hit the ground there, I figure out how they're utilizing it and what they're feeding on. And I say, okay, why is it important? Why is it important to know what they're feeding on? Now, this isn't farmland. This is the wilderness. What are these deer eating beyond browsing? Because they don't stop browsing until everything else has been consumed. Hmm. There isn't acorns. There isn't what, what, what primarily are they feeding on? Based on the way a whitetail's uh, digestive system is built, they have to eat every four to six hours. And if you know what they're feeding on, the does and the fawns will be closest to the feed and the bucks will be up high. That's where I want to know where the ridges are. They're going to bed up high mm -hmm. is every four to six hours. They're going to be feeding. They go in circles. And if I know that I have the opportunity when there isn't snow to intercept a buck at least once, possibly twice during any given hunting day, depending on their feed schedule. Gotcha. So, see where all this becomes important? It all becomes important because, again, trying to put all of the cards, if you will, in my favor. Right. As many as I possibly can. Right. So, if I know there's a big deer in that area, indicative of his track, and if I see where he's crossing, and I know where the feed is primarily, and I know the wind currents, I know the terrain, then I'm going to have a better opportunity when there isn't snow on the ground than if I didn't know any of that. Right. Now, this occurrence, this interaction, you're giving yourself a better chance, but it doesn't happen 100% of the time, right? But it's oh still, my. Be still better, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, no. I mean, this is what I tell folks, <clears throat> and I believe this today as much as I believed it from the start. If you want to be a more successful 
white-tailed deer hunter. It's going to come from knowing and understanding white-tailed behavior. Mm-hmm. The more you understand that deer and you understand what period of time it is during a given hunting season, you're going to put yourself in positions to help you become more successful than not knowing this. Right. And that's, that's basically, that's why it's called hunting. Right. Right. There is, I don't care what's been written. I don't care about editors that perhaps wanted to embellish things to make someone look bigger or better than is humanly possible. The reality of it all, Jay, is opportunities present themselves to those that are prepared, but those opportunities don't come every day. Those opportunities sometimes don't come every season. Right. Right. And, um, you just, you just, you work at it. You're diligent. You do your, you do what you need to do. And, 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 uh, you know, I tell people hunting is a graceful act. You, we can't force it to happen. It's got to happen on its own. It's got to unfold. I've tracked bucks where I've done everything perfect in my estimation. Anyways, some might argue that, but I've done everything to the letter of the, you know, trackology. Right. And, and didn't, and the buck just slipped through my fingers, like the thread of a beautiful dream for whatever reason. Right. Other times I've snapped a branch. I've done, I said, boy, you, you're, there's no way on this man's plan that you're going to, no, there's no way. And I'm killing the buck. Right. So, you know, it, it's, Hey, you say, thank you. And did I learn something? Yeah. Don't snap branches, but yet there it is. And it, each, 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 each buck has got a different personality. Each day is a little different. It's, it's like turkeys. I mean, some days you, you, you slam your car door. And they're gobbling their brains out. But the, the two days later, you you put, present a serenade that, that ought to have every every bird on the planet in your lap, and nobody even opens their mouth. Right, right. And you go, why is that? Well, because that's their disposition today. That's their disposition. That's, that's their personality. You and I wake up some days that we're ready to lick the world. Other days, you know, dragging our feet across the carpet. Right, right. I wanted to illustrate that point just because when we talk about this sometimes and it sounds like, Hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be successful. Well, you could do X, Y, and Z and still not be successful, but you gave yourself a better chance. I just want to make that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Right. So, you know, people say, wow, Hey, good luck. And, And, you know, I mean, luck is, luck is when the, uh, opportunity meets the prepared. You know, um, some people shoot a deer, they're ill-prepared and, but yet that same person, if they'd be honest with us would say, you know what, I'm not sure I could duplicate that. And, and that was the big thing for me early on was tracking to me seemed like it was a way that, that I could continue to duplicate the results I was looking for because I knew I had a buck in front of me and it was a matter of catching up to him without him knowing I was there. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Tell me about some of the gear that you use and let's talk about some basic tracking skills that you think would be important for the beginner. Well, I used to go pretty light, Jay. And I mean, literally very light. And now as I've aged and, um, man, I, first of all, I never leave home without a camera. So therefore, in order to carry that camera, 
is I had to, I had to, I had to get a, a, a backpack. And so I said, well, and so I got the backpack, I got the camera. I said, well, that's a good place to stow my lunch. So, so I put my lunch in there and, I, and, and then I you know, went with a GPS. So that's something extra. And then I got, I got a buddy that convinced me to have a few survival items in case I ever got stuck overnight in the woods or whatnot. So I've added that. And so I, I probably carry more at this point in my hunting career than I ever did. But yet I think that I'm probably a little bit wiser than I was as a young man where all I need is a gun, five bullets and a compass pinned on my jacket and away I go. And, but, I now carry three compasses besides the GPS because I think that's important. If one of them doesn't work, you've got two more to compare it to. So I, I, I carry water with me now. I never carried water in my younger days. I carry a bottle of water, and that's important to stay hydrated. I carry an extra pair of gloves and you know something that as simple as that, but wet gloves in the middle of the day when it's cold is not a pleasant experience. So those are some of the, some people say, that's it. That's your extra stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, considering how I started, yes, that's my extra stuff. Um, I typically wear wool, uh, but if it's too, too warm, I've got uh, fleece, a camo and because they don't make fleece green. Uh, so I wear fleece camo. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, the thing is based on a white tail's visual acuity, so your listeners will understand this and it, and this has been documented, um, in, in studies, um, camouflage clothing is really made for hunters by hunters, uh, in a deer's world in a deer's vision. Yes, they see color, but, um, green and black checked, uh, a gray, jacket uh, i wouldn't wear a gray jacket that wouldn't be wise because you're hunting deer that look gray but a deer doesn't see camo any differently than he sees green and black red and black um and so your your choice of coloration in your in your garments um doesn't need to be as important as the quietness of it they'll hear a noise long before they'll see you standing there motionless and everything's about motion everything for me is about motion and quiet if you're going to be successful, you've got to be methodical in, in your motions and you've got to be uh, quiet in your, as, you're, as you're going. Um, not that you're not going to make some noise, but I tell folks, hey, have you ever thought about as you're walking through the woods? Well, no. I said, have you ever listened to a deer walk in the woods? Well, I've heard deer. Have you ever listened? And basically, a, a whitetail walks in odd steps. Sometimes they'll take one step, they'll take three steps, they'll take seven steps, but their cadence isn't, isn't one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That's our cadence. And so I learned long ago that when I walk on bare ground and I'm going to make some noise, I'm conscious of when I stop, I stop after three steps. I stop after one, I break it up. Sometimes I'll take seven steps. I'll stop. And, And my time that I stop is different each time. Sometimes I'll stop for three seconds. Other times I'll stop for three minutes and I'll try to stop next to something that'll break up my silhouette to some degree. So I'm thinking about all of that as I'm going through the woods. Now this is on bare ground on snow. I, you know, obviously you don't have to worry about that. And, uh, when you're tracking, you don't have to worry about which way the wind's blowing because you're following that track. And I've killed as many deer with the wind in my back towards them tracking 
as I have cross cutting or in my face. And, you know, uh, but when, when it's ground is brown, then basically you need to ensure that worst case you're cross cutting the wind. Uh, you never want to be walking with the wind to your back. I mean, that's like blowing a trumpet. Right. Right. Uh, that makes sense. So if you had to break it down even further, like I've had some guys say, Hey, I love your, your, when you talk to the trackers, I want to be a tracker. I am a tracker or I just got into tracking, but I'd really like to know about some of the advanced techniques that a tracker should use. And I'm not sure that there are advanced techniques that trackers should use. It's almost like the basic ones might even be the advanced ones. Um, but maybe you can allude to that or, or uh, extrapolate on that a little bit. Well, there's, there's, there's really four, four major yet simple aspects to tracking. If you're going to be successful, because anybody, anybody, Jay, can follow a set of imprints in the snow for any length of time. But we're not just following them. I mean, we want to we want to follow those to get to the end of them and shoot the maker of that without that maker knowing anyone's behind them. Right. So this is where deer behavior comes again to play in a big way. Is understanding and knowing deer behavior helps you as you're looking at that track understand what that deer's doing. He's just not walking a deer. It's just like you you going to okay, I've got to go to the mall and I know the route I need to take. So you're not going to be going through some pasture to get to the mall. You're going to take the route that's best suited for you that maybe gets you there the quickest if you need something really fast or ah, I'll take this way around because I'll avoid traffic. These bucks are the same way. They've got specific routes that they take. And so knowing that as you're tracking them, and knowing why they're going in the direction they're going, it's not just because that's the way the wind's blowing. And I think that's why a lot of times these bucks will walk with, uh, cross-winded. Mm. It gives them a lot more latitude in terms of how they can maneuver. And it also uh, provides them scent coming up from below so they can cross-cut it and catch the scent of a doe coming up the hill, up the slope, or down the slope depending on time of day. And boom. So basically, four things. Number one, aging the track. You don't want to be you don't want to be tracking something that was made two days ago. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be tracking. Jay, if I if I find that track and if it's let over three hours old, forget it. I don't care how big he is. He's got four legs. I've got two. Yeah. I need a fresh track if I'm going to catch him. And so the odds of me catching a buck that with a track that's fresh for three hours or less is far greater than tracking a buck that might be twelve. 18, 24 hours old. Okay. So that's the first thing. How you decide what's fresh. And what's okay. Not. Okay. So basically I'm looking at how sharp the outline of that track is. When I, where I find that track, I'm looking into it. I put my boot print next to it. Understand the bottom of a deer's hoof is warm. So when he steps into that cold snow, okay, he's going to, he's going to crystallize some of it depending on what the temperature, what the humidity factor is. But I put my boot in, and I pick it up much like a deer would pick his foot up out of there. And I, and I compare the two outlines on the outside of that track. And I look and see how crisp and sharp mine is as compared to that. And, and I, okay, is, how has the elements had any effect on that track? Has the wind had an effect? 
has the sun had an effect? And so I compare all of that in my head and, and it and brings me to the place that, okay, this track is, this track is, and, and in snow conditions, wet snow, it's, it's easier than dry powder is the toughest to determine age. And here's, here's how I practice. And anybody living, at least in the Northeast, gets snow on a regular basis from November to April. If you have a dog, take your dog out on a leash and look at his track. Bring him back in. Two hours later, take the dog back out. Walk him past the first set of tracks. While he's doing his business, now compare the two. One's fresh, one's two hours old. Bring him back in. Two hours later, take him back out again. Walk him past the first two set of tracks. One's fresh, one's two hours old, one's four hours old. Under a variety of snow conditions, over the course of a winter, you will become proficient at being able to age tracks. Okay. All right. So moving on to number two. Okay. Aging, assessing. Is it a buck? Is it a doe? And is a buck big enough for me to follow? Okay. Buck and doe. They walk differently because they're built differently. Buck front hoofs are larger than his rear. His rear hoofs will always fall into his front hoofs. And because of the way his chest is configured, he will walk with a slight toe out. That's, that's bucks, no matter what size they are, what age they are. Okay. A doe is built slender to the front, wide to the rear. Her rear hoofs will slightly overlap her front, and she'll walk in more of a straight or a toe in. And now, in terms of size, if you're looking for a buck that, that's going to dress over 200 pounds, which is my minimum, I'm looking for that. Here's what I found over all the years of, of tracking these deer, is the first thing I want to look for is how deep he's, first of all, the track, the length of the track means nothing to me. What I'm looking for is width. As a buck ages, that track widens to support the weight. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for a track that's approaching three inches or greater in width. Okay. Then I want to know, and I want to determine how deep is he sinking into the soil? And the deeper he sinks in, the heavier he's going to be. Yeah. And then, and then I look at uh, stagger from right to left. If the wider that stagger is from right to left, you draw a center line, the wider and heftier his chest is, his girth is, and that means a heavier buck. And then I, I, I look for stride from back foot to front foot. How far is it spaced? An average four-foot stride is, is, and everything else put together, Okay. And the longer, the longer that stride, if it gets longer, that means a longer body and more weight. And, you know, now it's like, it's like second, second guess, you know, boom, that's what I want. So I put those all together. Okay. Memorize the track. Yep. Every buck you track is going to be different, but yet there's some similarities. And that single imprint that you start following and are all excited about sooner than later is going to intercept other deer tracks. Right. Some might be, nearly as big as him and that buck if he thinks he's being followed or even if he's been followed before we'll do a loop and all of a sudden you'll come on to a spot where oh my i've got another buck that's that's following this guy that looped around and if you take the wrong side of that you're going to come back and say hey there's somebody following me when in reality it's your track the buck has done a loop and boom gotcha so you need to memorize something about that track, either the right hand or the left hand that you can pick up any place. And here's a little secret that I tell people that makes life simple, easy, and takes the guesswork out. If we all remember the, the Cinderella story is that she had glass slippers. Right. And when she ran out of the 
Prince's castle. She dropped one of her slippers. Now, that slipper only would fit her. So when I find the buck, I'm going to track for the day. I pick the right hand or the left-hand side. I get a dead stick. I put it at the widest point on that track. I snap it off, and that stick now will only fit that buck. So if I get to a place where I'm confused or he's in a barnyard of tracks or whatever, I don't want to waste time. Where would he go? I'll circle around. Is this him? Boom. Nope, that doesn't fit. Go around some more. Is this it? There it is. Boom, there it is. Boom, and away I go. Okay. All right. Good one. Yep. Yep. That has that has saved me lots of time and frustration okay. over the years. And lastly, and I'll go right back to the deer behavior thing, is just like we read books, we don't start from the back and read to the front. We start from the front and we read to the end. Wherever we I pick that track up, that buck now is going to be detailing a chronology of what he's been doing. And based on that, what is he about to do? For instance, I'm following that buck and he's going in a straight line. And then all of a sudden he starts to deviate. He starts to meander a bit. Why is he meandering? Oh, look, he's nipping here. Oh, he's nipping there. He's browsing. And then all of a sudden, what's the next thing in my brain? I'm thinking, okay, he's, he's browsing. He's eating. What typically happens after they eat if they're not chasing does? Oh, yes, he's probably going to go to sleep. And then I come to a place where there's a big J-hook heading on the uphill side. When I reach that point, the safe is off, the gun is on my shoulder because either I've walked past him in his bed yeah. or he's about to exit his bed. Gotcha. So that's no, that's reading the track, not just following it. Right, right, right. The twists and turns. So those are the four mm-hmm. basics. Okay. You know, and, and each one has its own, but you, you, you the, I mean, it's, that, those are the basics. And it all, all boils down to, it's, it's just not wandering through the woods. It's, it's literally your, your decidedly making decisions and choices based on what's being revealed to you and what you know about deer behavior and all of your experiences up until this point. Right. And I think you just nailed it. To, to me, yeah, those are the four basics. But if you want to look at the advanced skill, it is the read and it's the experience of the of the whole thing. Like you, I'm not sure you can have advanced tracking skills that can be described. You have to go learn them yourself. Yeah, I mean, and and you can follow somebody, and and they can point this out to you. And that's the primer. And everybody needs a teacher, and everybody needs to get you know. And I've had a number of folks over the years that that, that I've led around, and and so that's where so that takes away the second guessing. Right. So when somebody's following you, say somebody's following me, and I point these things out, when they see that, that's going to take away the second guessing on their part. Right. But beyond that, now you've got to make the experiences. You've got to understand what you're seeing and make the correct choices. And even at that, the correct choices and doing everything right as expressed earlier doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to, you're going to shoot him. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and again, that's the beauty of hunting. That's the, to me, that's the, that's why you do it for the self-satisfaction, the gratification, the, it's, it's because it's the unknown. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. In an environment that you're not going to run into somebody's backyard or, um, it's the wilderness. You, you know, you can, any number of things can, can happen in any given day that you might see that otherwise you wouldn't or, or experience. Yeah. Gotcha. Can we talk about the tracker's firearm for a moment? And we talked about main, sure. main being a gun state, and certainly this kind of leads up to a bit. I just 
looking at the tracker's gun, it's always different than the gun that you might use out west, you know, for the super long shots. The, right. I mean, these are kind of specialized firearms that trackers seem to gravitate towards more than any. You want to? Can you describe the, your gun and and or maybe you have multiple ones, but it always seems to have a certain element to it. Well, mine is light, um, although I think a Kimber is even lighter, but it doesn't have the same action. Um, basically, I, I shoot a Remington pump, popularized by Larry. Yep. Sure. And there's lots of people who have shot Remington pumps over the years and continue to shoot them. For me, not being a rather large individual, I needed something light. I need something functional. I need something that was not going to give me a problem. Uh, and I, I needed something that was fast. And it just seemed like that was the Remington pump was, was what was going to do it for me. Okay. And so I cut my stocks down to where my trigger pull is exactly built for my short arms. And so when I bring that up, put it on my shoulder, if my eyes were closed, my sight picture would be the same. It's all rehearsed. This, whatever your choice of weapon is, needs to be as familiar to you as, as, the things in life that you are most familiar with. Okay. Because you can't think about this. It's got to all be subconscious, muscle memory. Everything's got to come into play immediately or you're not going to get them. Right. Because a lot of these shots are bucks coming up out of their beds or not exactly where you expected him to be. And it's got to, it's just got to be second nature. So, um, mine's a carbine because a lot of the terrain I'm hunting is, uh, thick. And I can't have a barrel hanging up on a limb or whatnot. And quite frankly, and this is by no means, I would not want your listeners to think, well, who's this? this guy's pretty, pretty arrogant, isn't he? There's <laughs> it, no arrogance about it, honest and truly, because of the nature of the terrain and my long, that's 50 years of hunting practice at being quiet and stealthy. Um, my deer are 50 yards or less. That I'm shooting. So, again, without being redundant, um, I've long always prided myself on hunting skill versus shooting skill. Yeah. Figured the closer I am, the harder it's going to be to miss. Although I've missed some ship shots, I'll tell you. <laughs> wow. <Right>. I have. <laughs> oh, man. But, right. uh, yeah, so that's that's the choice of my weapon. I use 180-grain Corlock soft points, okay. Remington bullets. All right. Um, there might be better. But that's what my guns are sighted in for, and I've been successful with that. So that's that's what I've used and, and continue to use. Open sights, I would assume, at 50 yards. I well, imagine. you know, I, I, I grew up, my dad, had, when I, my first deer rifle had peep sights, mm -hmm. and so I learned to shoot peep sights. And I never learned to shoot them with my, both eyes open. Okay. Which, to a lot of people, would say that's disadvantage. That was, and, and more than likely, probably had, it is. But I, I could not reteach myself after all those years to open that eye with any success. Yeah. So I've always shot with my left eye closed. And up until 2005, so I guess that was 15, 12 years ago, um, I'd shot peep sight. Yeah. And then I was having some difficulty putting the bead on the animal. I could still put the bead in the peep, but putting the bead on the animal out there was becoming a little bit difficult. 
And so uh, I opted to go with a, uh, at that point before it was really necessary for scope. And so I put a two to seven Leopold uh, muzzleloader shotgun scope on my rifles and made all the difference in the world as far as being on. So the scope was based on my eyesight deteriorating enough to where I didn't want to wound animals. I wanted to kill them if I shot them. So that's why I went to a scope. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Now I, I did, I found something I liked even better that was closer to a peep sight on my favorite deer rifle. I found a shotgun scope that has a, that has a circle hmm. for turkeys, a turkey plex. And, uh, Interesting. so I put okay. that on that. Oh my goodness. I, I absolutely love it. I absolutely. Now on my turkey gun, I have no scope. I still have peep sights, yeah. but on my deer rifle, I have a turkey, turkey scope, scope <laughs> one to four. And, uh, yeah, I've killed some, some super bucks with that setup. That's funny. That's how we do it in Maine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, That's hey. Funny. So you, you focused, it seems like a lot. Uh, or earlier in your life, uh, more on the hunting and the seminars. And I see you doing more writing and photography these days. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that you've gotten into? Well, um, actually writing my first book and my English teachers would literally be rolling <laughs> if they realized that I, right. I am a writer because they would have never, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have taken that bet for all the world. Right. And I wouldn't have blamed them. <laughs> And there's days that I curse myself for not paying attention to grammar lessons, but mm-hmm. I figure, well, that's why they make editors. Um, but, uh, I'm sure I've given some editors fits over time, but, uh, when I wrote my first book, I had no idea what, what would transpire as a result of that. And everything sort of just mushroomed as a result of that. Mm. I never woke up one day and dreamed that I would have a job that was my hobby with my passion. Uh, and it just, it, 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 it happened. And my, I had an incredible mentor, uh, that, uh, I lost this past December and he told me this, he said, Bernier, if you're going to make it in this business, you need to do three things and you need to do them better than anybody else. I said, okay. And he says, and none of it has anything to do with killing deer or large deer. Although that's good that you do. I said, okay, what is that? He said, you need to be able to write well. Okay. You need to be able to photograph well. Okay. And you need to be able to speak well. Hmm. And so, and then of course he, all right, when I'm talking about photographing well, he says, that's probably going to be your most expensive investment. Speaking well, we can't have you standing up there uh, um, searching for words. It's got to flow. Boom. So people are in listening and writing well. Well, what I'm reading right now looks like you probably got that. And so I, I worked very, very hard at all three of those aspects and continue to continue to hone that. And a lot of what I do now, such as the photography, I've, I've never done anything physically where that, that has brought me more gratification than capturing wildlife doing what they do and capturing it well. 
and I'm constantly critiquing my stuff. And unfortunately, my mentor, I can't send him an image. Uh, I shot one this morning that I said, man, Charlie, I'd love to send this to get your take. Because his take meant something to me. I remember one early image. I, he says, okay, how brutally honest do you want me to be with you? I said, well, if I'm going to be good at this, I, I've got to have you absolutely honest with me. He says, this isn't going to fly. It's, it's not tack sharp. It's soft. And can't have that. Okay. So those three things I've worked very, very, very hard at to excel, uh, not for any more reason than to be, to do it well. And, and that's always been whatever I've put my hand to, I've wanted to do it well. I've wanted my dad to be pleased with what he's our son doing. I wanted my mentor to be pleased with what he's, his investment has produced. And I'm probably tougher on me than anybody else could be. I'll look at a photo that someone will say, well, that is just super. And and I'll look and I'll critique it and and realize that there's some flaws in it Mm. that I could probably do better and work towards that end. So what a lot of people see now is as a result of a lot of the writing, I, I started a blog back in 2011, simply because a magazine went out of business, uh, just all the boom done belly up and a lot of the uh a lot of stuff is being now utilized on online so i i make no money i have no sponsors and but i i do that blog every other week Mm -hmm. and it doesn't cost anybody a dime and i've got a number of followers that look forward to it every other week they've learned a lot and I utilize my photograph photography to illustrate it and besides selling it. So that's what a lot of people see. And the hunting aspect, I've, I've often been asked, hey, do you still hunt? Of course I still hunt. <laughs> and yeah, I've been successful. But you know what? That's the season of life I'm in. You know what? For me, it's far more important for you to see this, to understand this, then to, 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 for you to see another hero shot with the deer tracker and a, and a dead animal. And not that I won't put those out there, but that, that's not, that's not going to help you kill a buck. Right. It's not going to help you kill a bird. Right. Right. And then that's my attitude, Jay. It, it, and, and maybe it's different from others, but, and again, you gotta, if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna tell people how to grow corn, you gotta have corn in your crib. So, you, you know, you gotta th- throw the hero shots out there every now and again. But sure, sure. for the most part, I would think that the credibility aspect has been built and that my, my, I want to give back to folks. That's why it doesn't cost them anything to read it. If they want to take the time. Uh, it doesn't cost them anything to look, to enjoy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's bringing something back and providing it for those that maybe either aren't fortunate enough or don't have the time to be able to do that themselves. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. Excellent. All right. So I asked you to think of a, a memorable deer hunt um, that you've been on. And I was wondering if you could take us on a journey with you and recollect that and, and slow it down into some play-by-play so we can feel like we're there with you. Where are we going to well, go? Well, probably my most memorable was back in 1987. And I named this buck the Marathon Buck. And it was three and a half weeks, and I'd hunted three and a half weeks in Maine and still had not killed a buck. And I remember that day, I went back in on this mountain and I cut 
a lot of a lot of deer sign and buck sign and found some big scrapes. And by the time I reached this particular area, it was early mid afternoon. So I knew I couldn't start a buck at that point, but I observed everything, looked at the terrain. I'd been in the general area before, but not in that specific spot. Okay. So when I came out that, that night, I told my dad who'd already killed a buck. So he's waiting on me. Actually, he, he killed the buck that I was tracking. He's supposed to have been several, several hundred yards further down the way when I came along and he'd already shot the buck. And of course I was happy for him. And, but, uh, the first question I asked him, Hey, I thought you were going here. I changed my mind. I said, yeah, you changed your mind. Anyhow. So I said, I want to go back there the next morning. And so I did. And it was, it started raining. I went right back to where I found that big scrape and it was big. It was, it was a huge scrape. I saw a lot of deer sign around it. And I picked up this buck's track and started tracking him. And it starts raining. And I remember that night, and I'm going to take you back. Okay. Uh, the night before, we're sitting at dinner in the camper. We used to use the camp. We, for years, we camped in the camper because it got us back in there and you didn't have to travel a long ways. And my dad looking at me and he says, Hey, why don't you just leave these tracks alone? Just go in there, still hunt. And I said, you're still not understanding this, that this is how I hunt. This is how I want to hunt. So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't say anything. I just said, well, I'm going to, uh, given the opportunity, I'm going to show them. So anyhow, back now to the next morning, it's raining. I picked this buck track up and he's going and, and he, I come onto this small stunted fir tree that he literally rub all the limbs off it fresh. So I, I continue and I'm tracking, I'm tracking. He kind of takes me down into a cut and swerves to the left. I keep going and I get to a place where I can look out there and all of a sudden I, I see antlers bobbing. Only they're coming back at an angle towards me to my left and they disappear because you've been in cuts, I'm sure before where sure, it seems like you can see forever, and then all of a sudden, and everything's a twisted mess. Yep. <laughs> so I had a I had a birch tree and a stump where a tree had been cut. So I hopped up on that, and I'm searching out there. Now I'm shooting peep sights. I search out there, and all of a sudden, this buck comes comes into sight and stops. And I'm going to say he's eighty, maybe eighty five yards out. And part of him is like you know I can see. Half the deer, half up. And so I, I, I put it, you know, put the beat on him and I mean, it's a, uh, and shoot. And, and once I shoot, he, it's like he sits down, boom, he's down. So I, I shoot again and he disappears. So, okay, I, I head over to where he was mm-hmm. and immediately where he'd gone down, I find, I see blood. And so I start to follow the track and boom, I jump him and away he goes. I couldn't get another shot. So I stopped. I said, okay. And lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, who's been following me all this time, but my dad, (laughs) he says, so did you, did you hit him? I said, yeah, I've got blood, but he just took off. He says, is it the buck you've been tracking? Well, I'm not sure. He said, well, stay right there. He he's hit good. He said, he's not going to go far. He says, let me continue following his track and let's, see if it's the same buck well sure as the world it was and uh so away we took he says you go ahead and lead and 
Let's see where he takes it. Well, by golly, I'm telling you, Jay, from that point, it was a horse race. I mean, this buck <laughs> went up over the mountain, yeah. went down the other side, still haven't seen him again, yeah. following blood. And, I mean, not a lot of blood. And, of course, on snow, a little bit of blood looks like it's been painted. But right, right. Across a major logging road whereby, you know, logging trucks were going down past, down the other side, he gets to this, well, they call it a brook. But boy, I'll tell you right now, there's no brooks I know that that size and that deep. <laughs> so I get there and I'm standing there looking at it and he's gone across yeah. and who comes right up behind me, but pop, he said, he crossed. I said, yeah, well, we're not going to kill him on this side <laughs> without even missing a beat. And he goes, so I'm watching pop go across this brook. That's, you know, up to just about his knees. So you can imagine with me, it's probably a mid thigh. Right. So, yep, away I went. Now I'm thoroughly wet from that point down inside my boots because uh, followed this buck to just about up up another up another pretty sizable ridge, and just about the end of shooting light, he comes out of another stream, and I shoot. And when I got there, I found pieces of hair. Didn't find any additional blood, and he kept going. So. I marked the spot with, with a ribbon running out, you know, daylight was gone. Took a compass reading and hiked out to the nearest road, not back to the brook, but parallel to the brook. Then we <clears throat> hiked back to the truck. And I got to tell you, that night was like, there was no sleep. Next morning, it's foggy. It had rained a good part of the night. And we went right back to where that ribbon was. And we started following. And now it was a little tougher because the track you know, has been washed out to some extent. And, and although Pop wasn't a tracker per se, I'll tell you his his uh, help on this particular morning was paramount yep. because he was able to sort this buck out from another one that was roughly the same size because now we're just working on a track. Mm. Blood, whatever blood there would have been has been washed away. So now we've got to work on just the track. Yep. So I would stand on the last track and he'd go ahead and he'd say, okay, I got it here. Come on. And at times he was on his hands and knees to figure this thing out. And sure enough, probably I'm going to guess 1030 ish in the morning. We've been since daybreak. He motions for me to come forward. And I did. And he said, uh, out in the middle of the stream, he's standing. Hmm. So I push up past him and sure enough, there he was water halfway up his body standing out there. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I shoot him. And man, he, he raises his head and he lets out a sound that I'd never heard before since it was, it was just like a death moan. Hmm. And it was almost like he, it wasn't in pain. It was just, I don't know. It was, it was so surreal, Jay, that it was. And, and as he did that, his breath circled around the top of his antler. And so after that, and I later learned that once the adrenaline in one of these animals gets amped up. I mean, you can fill them full of holes and until you hit something absolutely vital, they aren't dying. They're dead on their feet, but they aren't dying. Yeah. So I took careful aim this time and where I believed his heart would be and, and shot again. And that, that put him over. And there was ice part way out onto this stream. Ironically yeah. enough, once again, he's in a stream. <laughs> so, um, you know, I go again, completely wet up to my thighs and, 
I dragged him up on the shelf ice and that's, that's where I field dressed him right there. And, and fortunately, while I was doing that, Pop found a, another road that was not too far a distance for his terms of a drag. And we dragged him out to that road, left him, walked back, got the vehicle. And we figured between the two days of tracking this deer, I know the story seems short in terms of, but uh, figured that this deer probably had gone between the two days, close to 26 miles marathon. Wow. And and not straight line or whatever. This is in circles and back and forth. I tell people all the time, you can be in a five square mile area and walk 20 miles without ever leaving that block of woods. Right, right. <laughs> so um, nicknamed him the Marathon Buck. And uh, he, he would have been an eight-pointer. He broke both his brow tines off. His main beam came within uh, fingers width of touching each other. Big tall tines. As a six-pointer, he netted 137. And that probably was the most unbelievable hunt that I'd, I'd ever encountered. That's a heck of a story. Of the, the emotional stress, the everything that went into that hunt, including cementing in my dad's eyes that because he says, "Keep tracking because you're good at it." Yep, yep. So a lot of a lot of a lot went into that hunt that uh, that literally, I guess, would put it at not the biggest by me. He had, he weighed two eighteen. Dressed to 18, but uh, it was just an incredible hunt. Heck of an adventure. Wow. Oh, and, and you know, here's the thing I've been saying for years. I'm glad you brought that word up. Adventure. Mm. You know, so much is, is now, you know, game cameras and food plots and all which are fine things and tree stand placement. But once you're beyond that, where's the adventure? Right. When did it all become the same thing over and over again? And for me, this style of hunting provides that renewed adventure every time out. And every hunt's going to be different because every animal's different. Right. And I think a lot of people are now starting, and I'm seeing a lot of articles, Jay, that are talking about, we want the adventure. We want that excitement. We want that in our hunt. And there's only one way to get that. Right. So... Good, good word choice to bring that to my mind. <laughs> it just kind of came into my head as we were talking. Yeah, well, that was good. All right. All right. So I have these 10 rapid fire questions I like to ask. All my rapid mind. fire. Rapid fire, just to get to know you a little better. So if you're ready, I'm ready. I just took a slug of water. Okay. So that ought to get me through five of them. That, at least, yep. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? No white tail behavior. Okay. If, if you know, if, if white tail behavior, if you have that down, you're going to kill far more deer than any other, anything else. Right. Right. No, it makes total sense. Some of us have these things. Some of us don't, but this thing that I'm thinking of is whatever it is, if you leave it in the truck and you don't have it with you, you feel like you're not quite going to have the, the best hunting day that you can, you could have. What's that one thing for you? If, if you have one of these things. Well, I'd, I'd like to say my camera. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, truly, I said, I'll kill a big deer today and I won't have the camera with me. Um, and I think the best shots are uh, right. I mean, completely fresh. Um, but th- most hunters may not be carrying them because they have cell phones that they have cameras on. And um, I don't, I, you know what? I would, I would probably say at this point now, if I forgot my GPS, okay, because Again, it lends itself in not a way that most people might use theirs. Right. As as indicated earlier. Yeah. Yep. 
That makes sense. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? Not accomplishing what I set out to accomplish. Uh, very good. That's a good it, one. It, it, it literally, whether it's behind the camera, whether it's with a gun in my hand, whether it's, it doesn't matter. It, it, I have in my mind, this, most of the shots that I have, I've already thought about them in my head. Mm. And so, uh, again, I guess it, lent, it it goes back to that, you know, I want to succeed for my own personal self-satisfaction. And nobody else knows if I didn't succeed or not. Nobody else knows in, in terms of, you know, a, a photo, but I do. And so it, uh, I think not being able to accomplish what I set out to do, and it might not even be my fault, right. but still it, 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 I wish it wasn't the case. I often look at people that go through life with just hum, you know, and I'm going, why can't I be like that? <laughs> <laughs> do you realize how fortunate you are, sir, to have that sort of attitude? Right. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. All right. What, uh, how old are you today, Richard? Uh, as of Sunday. Um, I've been on the planet for 59 years. Oh, happy birthday. That's great. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Looking back, what would you tell the 30 year old Richard Bernier knowing what you know today about life? <sighs> Enjoy it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thing that crept up on me faster than ever I thought, and if I knew how quickly it would go, um, we would have had at least three more kids. Gotcha. Uh, I, you know, ideally, you know, we had two. I now have four because both of them got married and I didn't realize how quickly that was going to happen and that whitetails are not the end all be all and fame is not going to put bread on your table, mm -hmm. nor is the whimsical fans going to do one thing for you, um, going forward. So love your family, enjoy every second as your kids are going up through I'll tell you, I'm in a season of life right now where I've got grandkids, five of them. I'll take more. And I tell you, it's the greatest thing that I've probably one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. Gotcha. Very cool. So at 30 years old, I didn't know any of this. Right. Right. And how could you? And there's some days I wake up and I'm not sure I know anything, Jay. Um, <laughs> but I do know this. Yeah. I can't get back the time that I lose. Yep. And so I want that time to count for something. Right. So, uh, you know, yeah. Makes sense. All right. You're, uh, you're at a hunting convention somewhere in the world and a stranger comes up to you and you have, you strike up a conversation. They ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? I run a daycare for a one-year-old grandson. Very nice. Excellent. All right. What did, <laughs> what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had an Egg McMuffin. Egg McMuffin. All right. Old school. Yeah. See, here's how it works. On Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, I get an egg McMuffin cooked by my best gal. Mm -hmm. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I get scrambled eggs and a piece of toast. Now, Saturday morning, you didn't ask me any of this, Jay. I didn't. But well, I'm going to tell you that anyways. Because Saturday, anyway. yep. Saturday mornings are my favorite breakfast morning. I love breakfast. Right. Oh, man, if I could, if I could eat without, you know, um, man, I would do this every day. But Saturday morning is my favorite breakfast morning. Because I get the fat man's breakfast. Nice. I get the bacon. I get the hash brown. I get the eggs. I get the English muffin. I get the whole deal. And it goes so quickly. <laughs> it's consumed so quickly. Right. I understand. All right. Yeah. If you could have your own billboard on the side of a highway, it's a blank canvas. You can put anything you want on it. What would it say? Love your God. 
Love your wife and love your children. Very nice. If I say the word successful. And those are my priorities. Okay. Gotcha. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops in your head and why? Charlie Alzheimer. Okay. And the reason why is because he was successful in the very things that I'd want on my billboard. Gotcha. Very nice. And, um, yeah. Nice. All right. What's a typical day in your life look like? I think you explained a little bit of it, but. It, it all depends on the day. Now, today, I, I, I was at Graham's daycare. I have my, my youngest grandson, who lives six miles from me. Uh, my other four grandchildren live in Canada. and uh, But my one-year-old that lives six miles from me, I I watch him three days, three days a week. And it's the greatest investment that I've ever made. And the other two days, he goes to daycare, a real daycare. But in this past year, I've had the greatest year just taking him places that no one-year-old or getting to be a one-year-old would have been. He's been photographing with me. He's, it's, it's just been incredible. And so today it was all about him and my seven month old Beagle pup who I've got two kids here. Uh, tomorrow being Thursday will be a different day tomorrow. I start the day out right now, photographing turkeys first hour or so when I have him, I'll go longer on a day where I don't have him, if the birds hang around or they want to cooperate. And uh, I, I work out. In order to do what I do, I've got to stay in shape. Right. And right. Uh, I work out hard, very hard, uh, every other day. And once the weather gets like it is now, on the alternate days, I'll take a three-and-a-half-mile walk with the beetle. Okay. So I, I try to, five to six days a week, get my heart rate up and, and work out and so that I can continue to do what I do. Nice. Okay. And then what's a typical deer hunting day in your life look like? I'm, I'm up early, always been an early riser. And, uh, I, I try to prepare for the day and, and my preparation for the day is, uh, is I want to know what direction the wind's blowing from, mm-hmm. what the temperature is going to be. Mm-hmm. Is that going to change during the day? Okay. And based on that, where am I going to hunt? Based on what I see for weather, based on is is going to primarily be where I'm going to hunt, and to have enough places where you can okay, I can't hunt that today because the wind's not coming right. Um, that's if there's no snow. If there's snow, then obviously I'm going to look for a track. Uh, so a typical day would be uh, I don't I do not go into the woods anymore as a deer hunter. As a turkey hunter, I go in before first light gets set up. Yep. But as a deer hunter, I don't go in the woods until I can see well. Okay. My my dusk and dawn vision has uh, deteriorated mm-hmm. to where I I just I don't feel comfortable. And if I can't see well enough, then uh, you know I'm not going to be able to hit what I'm shooting at. And so I just don't. I wait till I'm comfortable with the light, and that's different on a day to day basis. And then I start. And, um, you know what? I may go 10 miles in a day. I'm, I may go a half a mile. Right. It all based on what I'm seeing happening in front of me. Gotcha. And I want to enjoy, you know, that, that time. Uh, and my expectation is that I'm going to see a deer sooner than later. I'm going to see a buck I want to kill sooner than later, but there's a lot of bucks that, that, that walked around that I saw that I didn't want. Right. And that's, that's enjoyable. Because gotcha. I learn. I mean, I, I just I want to continue to learn. I want to continue right. to I want right. to continue to 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 
because I don't think we're ever going to know everything that needs to be known. And that's the mystery that still needs to be in deer hunting. Right. Because without that, or or turkey hunting, or whatever type of hunting that you're doing, if if you're going to consider it hunting, there's got to be that mystery. Yes. There can't be a guarantee. Right. Because as soon as there's a guarantee, guess what? It's not going to be fun anymore. Yeah. It's not interesting anymore. Right. It's not going to be interesting. And it goes back to why I don't, you know, I'm not inclined to want to have a bunch of hero shots because I don't, you know, it, it's, it's going to be fun for me. And I don't want the expectation to be, oh, you've got to kill a deer every year. Right. Or you've got to kill a specific deer every year. And I don't want to put that pressure on me because basically I want to enjoy this. Do I want to kill a nice deer every year? Of course I do. Am I working towards that end? Absolutely. But you know what, Jay? Now, if that doesn't happen, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of, um, I don't have to go into hibernation. I don't have to, you know, hang my head. I, it's, it just, that's, that's hunting and that's how it is. Right. Right. That so, makes sense. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So if by chance we've created more questions than answers for our listeners, as we talked for the last hour and a half, um, do, where can we find you if people want to reach out? You can find me. I'm on Facebook, uh, under Richard Bernier okay. and the guy with a, with a hero shot. I was a nice buck. I don't even remember what book that is, but anyhow, you can find me there. Um, you can find me at my two, I've got two websites. Yes, I'm not. I tell people, yes, I'm not important. I have to have two websites. No, actually my son is working on, on a website for me. And, um, I have my original, so I'll give you both websites. One is bigwhitetail.com, all one word, bigwhitetail.com, or thedeertracker.com. Nice. Very good. Excellent. So you can find me on either there, and, and you can get my email address from, from, from that. And so uh, that's pretty simple. Very good. Excellent. Richard, I got to tell you, this has been an absolute blast talking to you for the last hour and a half, and I learned a bunch and covered some basics, but uh, it's – very, uh, very entertaining talking to you. I, I had a good time and had some laughs and, uh, we'll, we'll have to do this again someday. And, and hopefully if things go well, as I prepare what I think is going to be a kind of like a, a, another chapter of the big buck registry, I'm going through each state trying to recreate the stories of the biggest buck ever killed in each state. So I'm hoping that you can join us for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Hinkley buck, uh, in terms of size, there's a heft, um, still stands head and shoulders above, above anything else that's ever been killed that I know of. All right. Well, we'll, we'll definitely have to touch on that down the road. I think that will be a story as told by Richard Bernier, if, if you're up for it. Well, it was, uh, that would be, that'd be fine, Jay. And you know what to reach me and it's been fun joining you, uh, this, this afternoon. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it's always neat to have people drag things out of you that you really, you, you yeah. know, and when I say drag, I, I don't mean, you know, like that's laborious. I'm meaning that, that some of the questions that, Oh, wow. I'm, wow. I thought, it, wow. I've got that, that in me that and you, I just need somebody to prompt yeah. it out. Yep. I'm with you. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. It's been an honor and a pleasure, Richard. And we'll have to do it again. Well, Hey, the, the pleasure was all mine, Jay. And I appreciate you thinking about me and hopefully your listeners are, uh, are equally entertained by, uh, what they hear. I got to say thank you to Richard for coming on the show. It's 
Always a pleasure to talk to a Northeast tracker. We've certainly talked to a number of them as we've gone through the years here at the Big Buck Registry, from Lane Benoit to Hal Blood, and now Richard Bernier, and you could throw Joe Donito in the mix there as well. It's just a really, really interesting style of hunting that is pretty unique to the northern states and very well known for the style in the northeast. It requires snow. It requires a long day sometimes. And understanding how whitetail is going to move through the big woods of the northeast. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines tip of the week? It's turkey season, so let's have a turkey tip, you know. The Chubby Tines tip of the week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentuckuk Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. Sometimes that old gobbler gets hung up with them hens, and I tell you what, if you can get in there, get set up where the roost, and if he flies down hens up, try to piss that hen off. Make her upset that you're calling to her man. So I think if you get in there and you make that hen aggravated, you got your odds of that hen coming over and calling her right in and her getting upset with your decoy set up. And uh, you know if she comes, you know what's going to be behind her, Jay. It's going to be that big thunder chicken back there. That's right. Got its head off. So I think uh, sometimes your strategy is really just to focus on calling him in. But if you can make her mad, she'll she'll come in no different than that big Tom will. Mm -hmm. From the field, from experience over the last 20 years, I have killed many a long beard by working the, the hen or the hens in front of that long beard first to the point where they almost sat on my lap multiple times. And then they finally just, and once they, I could get near them, I could spook them off and they'd go running. And the Tom was lagging behind as they do. The Tom didn't know what was going on because they didn't, he didn't see me move, but the hens did. And it was just enough to get him out of the range and pull that Tom in because he's following the hens. It's a great strategy. It's uh, it's amazing. If you can make a hen upset, she'll come in. She'll flog your decoys better than the Tom will sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. Great tip. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We are also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice, let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, and as an Amazon Alexa skill. Go to Alexa and say, Alexa, enable Big Buck Registry. 
And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckredstreet.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Yeah.